Hello, I'm Lucy Hobbs and I'm the chair of the AQR. For those who don't know us, this stands for the Association of Qualitative Research. One of our aims here at the AQR is to expand perspectives and deliver thought-provoking opinion pieces that resonate with our full membership base and hopefully beyond as well. We are therefore absolutely delighted to be launching our shiny brand new podcast series that is called Qualversations. We're going to kick off our podcast with stories from ordinary women who have made truly extraordinary things happen. In the first few episodes of Qualversations, AQR board member Debbie Newbold is going to be interviewing inspiring women who have broken through the proverbial glass ceiling and who are from outside of our immediate world of research. So what can we learn from these women and what can we learn from their experiences? It really is shocking to think that only 23% of business leaders in the world of research are women. This, of course, needs to change. Debbie and her guests will be discussing women and leadership and the journeys that they've been on to get to where they are today. The aim of our podcast series is to inspire you to entertain and hopefully to expand our listeners' minds. We do hope you enjoy Qualifications. I'd like to start our podcast by introducing Jill Pay. Jill broke through the glass ceiling when she became Britain's first female sergeant-at-arms of the House of Commons. That is the first female in a tradition that stretches back 607 years. In Jill's four years as sergeant-at-arms, she was at the heart of British pageantry and tradition. So Jill, kick us off. Can you tell us a little bit about being sergeant-at-arms? Yes, well, good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for inviting me to talk to you, Debbie. It was, yeah, it was a huge honour. You really did feel you were being the heart of the whole of the United Kingdom in this job. As you said, it's a historical role. The first one was in 1415 under Henry V, and uh, he sent Nicholas Mordet, one of his sergeants-at-arms, to help the Speaker in the House of Commons because it was quite unruly at the time. And he must have done a good job because there's been a sergeant-at-arms there ever since. It, uh, it began as sort of quite a, a policing role and then the tradition of all the ceremonial grew around it over the centuries. So the, the visual part of it is uh, very ceremonial, wearing Georgian court dress. Fortunately, being the first woman, I had a big hand in transforming that into be something more feminine. So I wore a skirt instead of breeches and I wore heels instead of flat shoes, but the whole of the uniform was Mine was much more comfortable than the men's, and it was more feminine. Although, if you see a photograph of us all together, we look the same. You're a very diminutive woman, and you've got a shock of red hair. So, actually, when you look at the pictures of you being Sergeant at Arms, uh, you cut a very dashing figure. Oh, that's very generous of you to say that. Thank you. Um, but behind the ceremonial, 80% of the job was about security. So, I was responsible for the security of the parliamentary estate and the three and a half thousand people who worked there and the one million visitors a year. So that was the the major part of the job. Although what I was seen doing, strutting about dressed up and carrying the beautiful mace, uh, was the ceremonial side. And, and that's what you saw every day. Fantastic. And you did the role for four years, but you were doing a lot of different things before that. 
I've heard your career described as a kaleidoscope across both public and private sectors. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, my uh, my background is business management. So that was um, all the studying qualifications were in business management. And I started off working in advertising for nearly 10 years. Then I worked in the private medical sector, running the business side of a um, private consultants practices in London and Birmingham and in Harley Street and in Ireland. And that was I learned a lot there about estate management, facilities management. And when um, that job became very full time and I needed to be nearer my parents uh, and my children, so I reluctantly left that job. And then I worked in the public sector in a project called TVEI, which was the Technical and Vocational Education Initiative. And it was a mini enterprise centre, which is quite ironic when I talk later about some of the things I'm doing now. But it was about Mm. making school and college curricula much more work related so that the students were what business wanted rather than what teachers thought they wanted. And there is a big difference. Then I did uh, worked in some uh, some training organisations, but the funding for that final job was for seven years. And I knew at the end I needed to find something else. And I was offered a couple of jobs that I'd applied for, but I had this enormous belief that the right job was out there for me. One day, my husband brought home the Daily Telegraph and there was an advertisement for the head office keeper in the House of Commons. And I laughed and I said, well, I know nothing about politics, let alone know what a head office keeper is. Anyway, he encouraged me to read on, which I did. And he was right. It was all the things that um, I was told I was good at and all the things I enjoyed doing. So I applied for this head office keeper job and after many rounds of interviews and presentations, um, I was offered it and I accepted. And it was it was the facilities manager, actually, for the parliamentary estate. So I was responsible for the delivery of all the frontline services to members and their staff. And that's such a big role. And as I understand it, you went head to head with a male former brigadier to um, secure your role as the sergeant at arms. Yes, so um, I did the head office keeper job for five years and then various other roles working my way up. Um, And ultimately, I was encouraged to apply for the sergeant at arms role. And that was, it's quite interesting, that was an international competition because in every legislature in the Commonwealth, there is a sergeant at arms, whether it's Ottawa, which is about the size of uh, Westminster Parliament, or a tiny island in the Caribbean. They all have a sergeant at arms. And with Westminster being seen as the mother of parliaments, it's a very desirable role to be sergeant at arms at Westminster. So it was an attractive proposition for anybody working in a legislature around the Commonwealth. And of course, as all my predecessors were ex-military, anybody thinking of leaving the military or having recently left it was quite an attractive um, role for them. So I think over 300 people applied and we went through headhunters and psychometric testing and written papers and presentations. In January of 2008, beginning of January, um, I and a former brigadier were interviewed by the Speaker and the Clerk of the House and they were then going to make a recommendation to the Queen because it is a royal appointment. The decision was either whether they're going to have more of what they had 600 years or whether they're going to have somebody with a very different style. And um, fortunately, they made the right decision 
And the appointment was announced from Buckingham Palace by press release on the 30th of January. And how does it feel to be a woman who broke the mould? I mean, it might be quite, it must feel quite scary as well as very empowering. I think I I was thinking much more about the role itself rather than the fact that I was a woman. But part of the encouragement I had to apply came from female members of parliament and my peers. And I think I felt quite proud that I had done this for other women in the House of Commons so that other women would be encouraged and inspired to apply for senior roles. And it it was quite scary the role because I was appointed at midday and at five past 12 I was expected to be the world expert on anything to do with being a sergeant which I wasn't but I had a brilliant network of experts who were so um, that gave me the cloak of confidence to carry on and do the job. Oh I love that phrase the cloak of confidence and so there must be times when you've paused and reflected on what you've achieved. And can you take us through your private I made it moments? Like what do you what did you do to celebrate? Are you a glass of champagne lady or are you a block of dairy milk? Like tell us a little bit about those like just those private moments when you're like, Wow, I I'm here, I did it. Well, I'm certainly a several glasses of champagne lady. Um, yeah. I think it was telling my family was the the I made it moment, because they all said, well, of course you've got it. We knew you were going to get it, you know, uh, which was lovely. And they'd been very warm and encouraging all the way. But it is, it's not about looking in the mirror. It's about having that response from the people you're closest to and care about. So, you know, from some of my colleagues were the same. They said, of course we knew you were going to get it. I said, well, you, you had more confidence than I did. I wasn't sure I was going to get it because of this whole tradition and I do value tradition but this whole tradition of you know this is how it's always been and the House of Commons is very reluctant to change. And this is a podcast and our listeners can hear you but they can't see you and a lot has been made of your style. Uh, People talk a lot about your diminutive stature, your shock of red hair. When I met you you're a very glamorous lady but how does that make you feel? Because men aren't talked about in that way. Um, you know, a lot has talked about your appearance. Yeah. And that's a very different um, way to to report on you rather than actually what you're doing. Yes, I don't I don't stand a great store by that. The I always remember a phrase that one of my mentors gave me was that it's when they stop talking about you that you want to worry. And the other inspiration was from Michelle Obama. And I love her quote that is when they go low, you go high. So I rise above all that silly tittle tattle about my red hair. Somebody called once called me Tilly the typist. No way. You know, I thought, oh, well, that, that says more about you than it says about me. That's true. Tell us about some of the challenges you faced. For example, I read that you faced the front bencher Dominic Green. There must have been some hairy, scary times uh, when you held your position? Yes, there were. I'll tell you about the Dominic Green incident in a minute. But there were scary times, like there were student riots in London and they were threatening to storm Parliament. And you can protect one entrance, but you're not quite sure whether they're going to know when there's another one down the road. And we had mounted police protecting the perimeter, Um, you know, and if the students had got through that would have been a complete disaster and it would have been um, down to me. The Tamils occupied Parliament Square 
for several yeah. weeks and they were incredibly well organized and um, they very often encouraged the women to bring their babies in pushchairs knowing that nobody would be stopping them. And we had Fathers yeah. for Justice on the roof of Westminster Hall. Um, oh, of course. And then, yeah, there were individual incidents like Dominic Green. The interesting thing about that is that he was arrested. And if somebody is arrested, then the police, generally with a warrant, can go in and seize computer equipment and everything. And the, one of the big points here is that members of parliament are not above the law. So they have to be treated in exactly the same way as any other citizen. I have got a backbone of steel and I stood my ground and I knew I was right. And what about the nicer times? I mean, you said that the Queen appointed you, so you must have met her a couple of times. Tell us some of the dignitaries that you've met over the years. You must have a, a cast of people that you've met, Jill. Well, yes, I've met the Queen three times, you know, through my job. I Before I became sergeant, I had the project to open Portcullis House, which was... Yeah. A huge project. I was doing it for 18 months and I was in there with a hard hat and boots and um, organising, getting all the services in, very involved in all the technical security in the building. But the last part of it was to organise the official opening by the Queen, um, which she came in, I think it was February of 2001. And it was a big occasion. She was due to be there for an hour and a half and we worked with the palace to organise who she was going to meet and as she was going round. And on the night before the um, opening, we had a call to say that, unfortunately, she'd only be able to stay for an hour instead of an hour and a half. Mm. So could we change the plans accordingly? So you can imagine that was a very late night making all that work. But we needn't have worried mm. because she totally self-managed her tour and how long she spoke to people. And she completed the tour and met all the right people, including me. And she has the gift of making you feel you, you are the most important person in the room and that she's spoken to you for about five minutes and it was probably 45 yeah. seconds. So that was, that was a huge privilege to meet her then and then a huge relief when she actually got herself back to her car exactly in 60 minutes and, uh, and she drove away without Incredible. incident. So that was amazing. The other yeah. people I've met, the, the, um, when I, before I was Sergeant Nelson Mandela, came very early in oh, my career wow. then. Yeah. He came to Westminster Hall, which you will have seen on television recently for the late Queen's lying in state. So it is an awesome environment. And on the morning of his visit, about six o'clock, um, a tall grey-haired man in a tracksuit jogged up to St Stephen's entrance and said to the policeman, could I come inside and have a look? And the policeman said, well, no, I'm very sorry, sir, but we have a big event here today. Security is at the very highest level and nobody is allowed to come in. And the man said, well, actually, I'm Nelson Mandela, and I've never <laughs> been here before, and I'd really like to see where I'm going to be speaking. So, of course, the policeman took him in, showed him. He was very so reassured, and uh, off he yeah. went back to the hotel. And Betty Boothroyd was speaker at the time, and when the uh, time for the official arrival came, he arrived at St Stephen's entrance and she met him. And when you get to the top of the steps up from St Stephen's entrance, it's called the Flats. It's a very huge, wide stone landing. And you look down yeah. flights of stone steps down into Westminster Hall, by which time there were 2,000 people on gilt chairs and banks of flowers and state trumpeters and whatever. 
and they were both in their 70s at the time and he he turned and looked at her and got hold of her hand and they walked down those stone steps together holding hands which I thought Ooh. said so much about the humility of both of them. Oh, that's such a lovely story. And the other people um, who came, there were several heads of state who addressed members and peers in the uh, Royal Gallery of the House of Lords, but the greatest accolade is to be invited to speak in Westminster Hall. And when there was talk yeah. of Donald Trump being invited, I knew that wasn't going to happen. To be invited, you yeah. have to have done something amazing globally to be invited to yeah. speak. So um, the Pope came while I was there, and that was very special. And um, when there's a big event like that in Westminster Hall, the House of Lords leads because of their close association with the monarch. So the House of Lords leads and the House of Commons takes a secondary role. But I had a very pleasant duty that day because I looked after the Pope's private secretary, who is nicknamed yeah. Gorgeous George because he resembles George yeah. Clooney. So that was that was quite a nice thing to do. And yeah. um, the final big visit before I left was President Obama. And he'd asked if he could have a private visit before the formalities began. So he arrived at the Norman porch, which is where the, um, the monarch arrives for the state opening. And he came and there was yeah. all the pomp and ceremony. And then once he'd entered into the House of Lords, it became a private visit. And there were still about 24 of us with all his security people talking into their cufflinks and Black Rod and I mm. were there and, and we. Mm -mm -mm. Um, and then Helen Heyman was the Lord Speaker at the time. So she conducted the tour through the House of Lords and then John Burko was the Commons Speaker. And then he continued the tour through the House of Commons. And we'd given him some anecdotes that he could use if, if he needed to, although I don't think John Burko ever ran out of conversation. No, no, um, I can't, can't imagine him ever being no. short of a, of a word or two. And, and one of the stories is that as you enter members' lobby on your sort of um, your half left is a statue of Winston Churchill. And yeah. the, the tradition is that when Conservative members of Parliament go into the chamber to make their maiden speech, they rub the toe of Winston Churchill's foot for luck. And it actually is... Yeah very bright brass. Yes, it's shiny, you isn't can it? See, yeah. yeah. Um, and so when uh, Barack Obama heard this, and you have to excuse my American accent here, he said, gee, I think I better do that. I sure as hell don't want to get <laughs> this one wrong. And there is a lovely photograph of him rubbing the toe of Winston Churchill's statue. And then he went oh. through to Westminster Hall and gave an amazing address. And when a president is on a grand tour like this, there's a huge entourage with him. And that will be businessmen and military and also people from the world of celebrity. And on this occasion, Tom Hanks and his wife, um, Rita Wilson, were in the group. So they were seated mm. in Westminster Hall and I had a chat with them. And they were absolutely overawed to be sitting in this hall that was nearly a thousand years old. They were really, really humbled by it. So there's some good stories. This podcast series is about leadership. I'm really interested to understand, did you have to learn a new leadership style to fit into the tradition of the Houses of Parliament? Or do you think they had to fit in a little bit more with your style? Well, I never lost the um, belief that I was appointed because of my style. My style was very different. It was much more facilitating. So my predecessors generally had been a very black and white yes or no. And if it was no to what the member wanted to do, then they would they'd find a way around rules. Whereas mm. my style was, 
about, well, let's let's agree what it is that you want to do and find a way together of achieving it without breaking the rules, upsetting the speaker, or from my point of view, compromising security. So it was a much more yeah, yeah, yeah. collaborative style of, uh, of leadership. Yeah. I think the way to, to lead is to be adaptable. So I think you have to mm-hmm. adapt to the situation you're in. And I think you need to be very focused on what it is that you want to achieve. So, for example, when I was um, doing the Port Colours House project, my brief was the smooth occupation of Port Colours House. And we never lost sight of that. What does that mean to you being a telephones person, to you being a furniture person, to you being whatever their role was? I had this big team of, of people working for me, but to keep very focused on what it is you're trying to mm. achieve and not be swayed away from that. So the Dominic Green example, you know, I knew I was right. I wasn't going to be shifted yeah, yeah, yeah. from what I was doing. Yeah. So you've got to be very focused, yeah. very firm, but take people with you listen to them. Yeah. I think the thing I learnt um, by joining the House of Commons was patience. You have to be very, <laughs> very patient and that's not one of my yeah. strengths. Yeah. So. And it's interesting that pinpoint focus because that is a lot of what you learn in advertising, isn't it? That focus, having that clarity yeah. of your brief. Yes. Um, so um, how do you think your appointment changed the Houses of Parliament? It's interesting, since then there's been other sergeants from ethnic backgrounds, for example, but no other women. How do you feel about that? Well, um, you say there's no other women, but in fact there's always a team of sergeants. Um, yeah. So Because there's always a sergeant-at-arms in the chair in the chamber when the House is sitting, so there has to be a team. And um, when there came a time when we had to save some money, there was a team of five permanent people full time that was reduced to three. So I invented the role of an associate sergeant. So that meant that people in other departments were trained and had uniforms, but they were then given the opportunity and they may have been in HR or they may have been in the works department um, to have the opportunity of actually experiencing what life at the centre was about. And a lot of those associate sergeants were women and women in the team. There were women in the team of sergeants. So although the the top job hasn't yet gone to another woman, there are many more women involved um, since I became the first sergeant. And I think it's, um, it's also worked across the house, not only in the sergeant's role, but across the house. There are many more women in senior appointments over the last 10, 15 years. So I think it's been an influence. Tell me a little bit now about what you've been doing since you left um, the Houses of Parliament. I know you've continued to champion women in business. Can you tell us a little bit more what you're doing now? Um, You're chair of the Gender Index, whose stated aim is to achieve positive change for women driven by data. Tell us a little bit about that first and uh, and then how, uh, yeah, how you got into that role, because that is as exciting and as interesting um, as the sergeant's role. And very different, <laughs> you know, the other. Experience. Yeah, very different. I just yeah. take it back a bit. When I, when I knew I was going to leave, um, I thought very hard about what I was going to do. One of my reasons for leaving after four years was that I think if I'd stayed much longer, I would have been burnt out with this huge security mm. responsibility. 
So I wanted to leave while I'd still got the energy and enthusiasm and the health to do other things. And what were those other things going to be? And while the big projects and the wonderful state occasions were fantastic, they were one-offs and they were done. And I, and I don't live in the past. I live in the present and the future. So I thought very long and hard, well, what was going to motivate me to, to move on and do other things? And it came down to that I got the biggest motivation from seeing the people around me develop. Everything I do now is supporting children, women and small businesses to grow, develop and thrive. I'm very involved in an organisation called Savitas and have been since 2007. It was formerly called Pink Shoe, but it grew up yeah. and became Savitas, which is Savvy Women with Gravitas, as you all know, oh, Debbie. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I've been yeah. involved with that. And we support women globally from cradle to grave. We support students, yeah. well, not quite cradle, but we have lots of intern students. Um, yesterday, we had World Business Women Day where we had women from all over the world in groups addressing the question, if you had global power for 24 hours, what one action would you take to support women in business? Which was uh, quite a phenomenal day. And that's what we do. Yeah. We support women yeah. who are maybe self-employed or they're women entrepreneurs or they're running bigger businesses or they're in corporates in business and in many, mm -hmm. many programs um, that we run to support them. And I've also been yeah. a member of the all-party group on women in enterprise since that um, came into being, I think, 2015. Mm -hmm. And I lead on the data work stream there. A huge issue has been that there has not been data on women-led companies ever. No, there isn't very no. much, is there? Well, there uh, wasn't. Um, and, <laughs> there wasn't. Yeah. No, yes. Yeah. And there's, um, there's a group of us. Some are female entrepreneurs, some are influencers, which is how I describe myself as academics. Yeah. And we were trying to get this data on uh, dis gender disaggregated data released. And we knew it existed in HMRC and other places, but to get it unlocked was very difficult. And for 10 years, we'd been talking to government, we'd been working with universities, we talked to HMRC, and we could not get it unlocked until through the all party group on women in enterprise, I was introduced in June 2020 to a man called John Cushing, who is the CEO and founder of an MNAI data platform, and they can produce gender disaggregated data. It really was a eureka moment. Mm -hmm. And um, so he and I worked together from about June, it was in lockdown, 2020 to December. And we came up with this plan to create something called the Gender Index. And I describe mm. it is that data man met gender woman. And when our worlds collided, <laughs> the gender index was conceived. And it's yeah. uh, an interactive website that has data on over four and a half million active incorporated companies in the UK. Mm. And through the main platform, the algorithms and machine learning can disaggregate that data not only by gender, but by area, by uh, sector, by investment type, by fast growth. And more recently, mm. we've added filters on ethnic minority leadership and generational leadership. Mm. And when we, we'd come up with the plan and what it was going to be, the red line was it had to be free to access. Because if people yeah. weren't going to use this data, 
we were not going to achieve our ultimate focus, uh, which is to stimulate the growth of female entrepreneurship in the UK. You may have heard that yeah. Alison Rose, when she was in charge of the Rose Review, predicted that if women started and grew their businesses at the same rate as men, it could add 250 billion to the economy. So that, yeah, I mean, that's it a great drive. Phenomenal, for this. isn't it? Yeah. Um, so, in yeah. order for access to the gender index to be free, we had to get some sponsors to fund it. Mm. And we mm. were able to attract companies who shared the ambition to drive the growth of female entrepreneurship. So, we have Amazon yeah. Web Services, we have the Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Business Programme, NatWest, yeah. um, HSBC yeah. Innovation Banking, which was. Um, SVB UK, but HSBC Innovation Banking bought them and they're now becoming a much bigger organisation. Hugh Smith's yeah. law firm and the MA platform itself. So those are our sponsors, but we also have academic partners. And the reason we do that is because we had to improve, we had to prove the integrity of the data. So right at the beginning, um, we're probably talking early 21 by now, we gave them a year of data. It's four universities, one in each nation. It's um, Warwick Business School, Strathclyde Business School, Cardiff and Queen's Belfast. We gave them the data and asked them to try and break it, and they couldn't. And they then did academic research on that data, and their findings and insights form the basis of the report that we launched in on the 31st of March 2022, when for the first time ever we were able to publish gender disaggregated data and the Gender Index website in our first report. The website is real time. So the website, yeah, yeah. It's, it's when you go in, it's always changing as, as the situation, the data refreshes every week. It's an amazing resource, but it does still show a big gulf between male and female-owned companies. Oh, definitely. Do you, yeah. it, what, I mean, this is a massive question, but what do you, if you had to boil it down to one or two um one or two thoughts themes what would you say needs to be done to support female entrepreneurs well there's a number a lot of it is about funding you know if i had the power i would close the gender pay gap because i think that's yeah. a great incentive for women to to take their place i would um unleash venture capital funding only 1% yeah. of venture capital funding goes to women-led companies and that is absolutely and that's shocking isn't it it is yeah. and it's it's goes back to the tradition bit of the you know they like yes. lend, venture capitalists generally like lending money to people who look like them yeah um, that's true so, but also i think there is a little bit of women feeling just slightly perhaps a little scared to take on venture capital because it's not something that uh, as a woman um, business owner is not something that you do. It's not that those aren't the worlds you mix in particularly. No, and you probably didn't understand what it meant. And what about things like what would you do to drive uh, gender equality? What What do you think we as a society need to do or think about differently? A long term um, piece is to put entrepreneurship and financial management into the curriculum right from yeah. primary because if boys and girls grow up learning the same thing at the same time and seeing each other doing the same thing at the same time, there isn't a gender gap. 
And I think it's that financial understanding that a lot of women don't have, which is why the risk element comes in, because they don't understand what the risk means and therefore they would step yeah. back from it. So, you know, the yeah. long, my long-term aim is to get entrepreneurship and financial education in the curriculum and that it goes all the way through, all the way through. I, I mean, a lot of universities yeah. are doing some great work on entrepreneurship, but to my mind, it's too late then you know it's, it's yeah and yeah. it's not because you want every child to run their own business but an entrepreneurial mindset is good for every business you know collaboration and good, good for ideas. society absolutely for yeah. society yeah as a whole yeah. and finally my last question my series this podcast series is all around inspiring women about leadership you talk a lot about ordinary women doing extraordinary things if you had to say to somebody who was, I don't know, six or seven now, a little girl now, six or seven, what advice, inspiration would you give to her? What would you say about ordinary women doing extraordinary things? Well, believe in yourself. If you believe <laughs> hard enough that you can do something, you will do it. You will achieve it. And I think at age six to seven, children do believe they can do anything. So that self-belief is, I think, is the greatest gift you can give to a child. Another thing I would do is to say, um, you know, if you've got a really good idea, get a mentor. Talk to somebody who's also had a really good idea and they've made it come true. Because you can learn so much from a mentor. I think everybody should have a mentor. Hmm. Um, and I would say always be your authentic self. Don't try and be something that you're not just because you want to do a particular thing. You've got to be your authentic self. You've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, I'm doing the right thing here. And be brave. You know, be brave. Go for it. You actually learn more from things that don't go well than from things that do go well. So if there's something you want to do, if you have a goal, go for it. Absolutely go for it. Believe you can do it. It's a wonderful thing to have that self-belief. I was very fortunate. I grew up in a family where, you know, they instilled at me in me that I could do anything that I wanted to achieve. So I think giving your own children and, and for me, grandchildren as well, that self-belief is, is a huge gift. And my final thing, I think, would be to say have fun. Because if you're not enjoying something, you're not going to stick with it. So have some fun in what you're doing and with the people around you. Jill, that's been fantastic. Thank you so much for giving up your time and telling us your story. It's been a delight to meet you. And um, yeah, thanks very much indeed. Well, thank you, Debbie. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So from me, Debbie Newbold, thank you very much for listening to Qualversations. So I'd like to thank our guest, Jill Pay, for talking to us. And I'd like to remind everybody to look out for our next podcast, when I will be talking to Polly McMaster, Chief Exec of the brand The Fold.